Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Scientists are seeing unlimited possibilities with mRNA. That's the new technology used in the Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccines. DNA makes mRNA, makes protein, makes life. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at the potential for mRNA to help fight other viruses and diseases like cancer and HIV. We'll also hear about Mexican-American pop star Selena's enduring legacy. This woman, just by not apologizing for who she was, changed culture. Plus, as sea shanties go viral on TikTok, we dig into their history. Shanties were a way to kind of keep your mind occupied and just kind of help your mood when you were doing a job that could take hours that you've probably done many, many times before. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Now that President Joe Biden has been inaugurated, familiar faces from around New England will be up for confirmation for key cabinet positions, including Education Secretary. In this critical moment of our nation's history, it's essential that there is an educating, an educator serving as Secretary of Education. I want to make that clear again. An educator, someone who's taught in the classroom, comes out of the classroom. Today, I'm pleased to announce that such a nominee we have, Dr. Miguel Cardona. Like uh, other cabinet nominees and appointees, he's brilliant, he's qualified, and he's tested. That was Biden speaking in December. Miguel Cardona was most recently commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Education. In accepting his nomination as Biden's education secretary, Cardona says he wants to forge opportunity out of crises, addressing disparities, investing in early education, and valuing teachers. He pointed to his upbringing in Connecticut as a foundation. I'm proud to say I was born at the Yale Lakers housing projects. That's where my parents, Hector and Sarah Cardona, instilled early on the importance of hard work, service to community, and education. I was blessed to attend the public schools in my hometown of Meriden, Connecticut, where I was able to expand my horizons and become the first in my family to graduate college and become a teacher, a principal, an assistant superintendent in the same community that gave me so much. That, that is the power of America. And I, being bilingual and bicultural, am as American as apple pie and rice and beans. That was Miguel Cardona, Biden's nominee for education secretary. Two nominees for Biden's economic team are also from New England. Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo was picked for Secretary of Commerce, tasked with promoting American businesses and industries. I am excited to get to work on a national scale to help realize the vision of the president-elect and vice president-elect to help more hardworking families in every community write the next chapter 
of their own American stories. And Boston Mayor Marty Walsh got the nomination for Secretary of Labor. He says he looks forward to putting power back in the hands of working people. And that is a good thing for our economy and for our country. We can defend workers' rights. We can grow union membership. We can create millions of good-paying jobs with investments in infrastructure, clean energy, and in high-tech manufacturing. If Walsh is confirmed, Boston City Council President Kim Janey will take over the role as mayor of the city, the first woman and person of color to do so. Walsh's move would also leave the 2021 mayor's race open. Two leading contenders who already declared their candidacy are women of color, Andrea Campbell and Michelle Wu. Now we turn to coronavirus vaccine distribution. It's been more than a month since the first vaccine doses were administered. And while the rollout has been slower than expected, most New England states were at the front of the pack in the first month, distributing more doses per 100,000 residents than in some other parts of the country. But a big question remains, will the vaccine distribution speed up, especially with a new president in charge? Look, our plan is as clear as it is bold get more people vaccinated for free, create more places for them to get vaccinated, mobilize more medical teams to get the shots in people's arms, increase supply and get it out the door as soon as possible. This will be one of the most challenging operational efforts ever undertaken by our country. But you have my word that we will manage the hell out of this operation. Today, we're going to hear about some of the challenges of the vaccine rollout in our region. But first, more on the new technology behind the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Those COVID vaccines use mRNA. And for over a decade, researchers have known of its potential. But now the potential has become a reality. And scientists hope this technology could soon be harnessed to help fight more diseases and viruses, such as cystic fibrosis, cancer, and HIV. WBUR's Angus Chen reports. One of Derek Rossi's favorite things to say is that there are three keys to life on Earth. DNA makes mRNA, makes protein, makes life. Rossi co-founded the biotech company Moderna, but before he did that, he was a biologist at Harvard tinkering with messenger RNA, or mRNA. You might have heard that DNA is the building block of life, but DNA is really just a database with information cells need to make proteins. RNA does the work of actually creating those proteins. For years, Rossi and other scientists tried designing strands of mRNA that could force cells to make specific proteins, but they failed. And it totally didn't work. What it looked like to the cell was that we were, you know, the mRNA was a virus. Human cells are used to fighting off viruses. So every time Rossi tried to insert the mRNA, the cell would either destroy the molecule or kill itself. Not at all what he wanted. Catalan Carrico, then a scientist at the University of Pennsylvania and now a senior vice president at BioNTech, was having the same results as Rossi. Then a colleague suggested altering the chemical letters that make up the mRNA code. By modifying the RNA, it cloaks the RNA. Maybe it's like giving it a fake passport. Immunologist Timothy Springer says the modified chemical letters made the mRNA appear harmless. Rossi used this discovery to create modified mRNA that could evade the cell's defenses. In one experiment, he injected mice with mRNA encoded for the protein that makes fireflies light up. And then, you know, an, an hour later, we put the mice into this machine and we could see this glowing spot. The experiments worked, and Rossi now knew how to control one of the three most fundamental keys to life. 
He took the new data to Springer, who immediately saw its potential. The possibilities were unlimited. You know, the RNA can encode for anything. They could be encoding a secreted protein or an enzyme in the cell or a vaccine to protect against SARS-CoV-2. About a decade before modified mRNA would power the world's highest profile vaccines, Springer helped Rossi co-found the company Moderna. Both still have stock in the company. Since then, Moderna and other companies like BioNTech have been studying modified mRNA, hoping to develop treatments for a wide variety of diseases, like heart failure and cystic fibrosis. In addition to COVID-19, researchers are also using mRNA for potential vaccines against Zika, HIV, even cancer. We're trying to amount an immune response that is going to actually attack the cancer cells and then lead to eradication. That's Dr. Kathy Wu, an oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Wu works on cancer vaccines that train the immune system to attack tumors. And she says mRNA might help create a breakthrough. Vaccines usually take a lot of money and time to create. If someone has advanced cancer, you can't really wait that long. Um, Being able to build vaccines in a more timely fashion is probably what's needed to make these actually really work. And mRNA vaccines can be made lightning fast. The COVID-19 vaccine took only days to design. The technology provides you with a nimble platform that you can switch things up quickly. Wu says scientists are now using this technology to develop personalized cancer vaccines. And now that COVID-19 vaccines are being produced on a massive scale, Wu says that could drive down production costs. The next step for these cancer vaccines is to test them in large clinical trials. That's true of other applications for modified mRNA too. And with billions of dollars going into this new technology, more therapeutics are likely to come soon. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. As vaccine distribution continues, there's ongoing concern about reaching communities of color who have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. As Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon reports, one doctor is documenting his experience with the vaccine to build trust among Latino patients. Dr. Jorge Moreno is describing his experience at the start of the new year, receiving the first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Moreno's an internist and an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine. He's Hispanic and of Mexican origin and says a lot of the data about the vaccine is in English. So was the information many of his peers were disseminating. So he wanted to share his experience with Spanish speakers, some of whom may distrust the vaccine and are hesitant about getting the shot. There was very little information available in Spanish, and there was little information available from Hispanic providers that could speak the language, that could relate, uh, give their experience about the vaccine. One of Moreno's concerns was the participation of Hispanics in vaccine trials. So before he rolled up his sleeve, he wanted to be sure there weren't any discrepancies between trial results for Hispanic people compared to other racial groups. And there wasn't. Um, The data shows that the vaccines had 94% efficacy rate uh, for uh, Hispanics and for the general population. Dr. Moreno says, most importantly, he wants to play his part in decreasing misinformation. And it's working, he says. Interestingly, the day after I did, I posted my video on Twitter, my first patient that day was someone that worked in the healthcare field. She had been sent an invite for the vaccine, but she waited to speak to me directly to ask me 
my opinion, because she didn't know who to trust. His patient then scheduled an appointment to receive the vaccine and passed on the information to another member of her family. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. When the vaccine distribution began, the moment was heralded as a turning point, a sign that help was coming soon, at least for those most at risk. But since then, some of the most vulnerable residents still haven't received their first doses. New Hampshire Public Radio's Casey McDermott has one such story from her state. This time last month, Karen Coleman was feeling cautiously optimistic. You know, I thought, okay, so here we go. It's going to start. I'm hearing that you know, people are already getting shots early December. Everything seemed like on track. She spent the better part of her life as the chief caretaker for her sister, Erica, who lives at Lafayette Center, a nursing home in Franconia. Erica has schizophrenia, and she spent most of her life in institutional care. But the pandemic brought her confinement to a new level. Try to imagine being stuck in a room since the beginning of this pandemic, not be able to get outside of a room. That's Erica and Karen's brother, Jamie Cunningham. The last Zoom call we had with her last Saturday, um, you know, we were saying how strong and courageous she was. And um, she responded that, you know, I, I wish other people could see my strength. Through the spring, summer and fall, Lafayette Center somehow managed to stay COVID free. So with the news that vaccines were on their way, it seemed like their family could soon finally breathe a sigh of relief. You know, 2020 hindsight, you know, I wish I'd been more concerned at that time. Her concerns quickly grew when she realized her sister and others at the nursing home wouldn't get vaccinated as quickly as they thought. First, the facility had trouble nailing down a clinic date, period. Then they were told they wouldn't get their first doses until the end of January, more than a month after the first vaccines went out to other local long-term care facilities. And then came even more troubling news. A resident at Lafayette Center tested positive for COVID. Even though they were giving lots of reassurance that it's under control, that, you know, we're putting special PPE practices in place and all this, I know well enough to know that in most cases, when you have this happen, it starts to snowball. They weren't alone in this anxiety. Most of New Hampshire's long-term care facilities are relying on a program run by the federal government and large pharmacy chains. CVS, which is managing the clinics at Lafayette and more than 150 other facilities across the state, says it's going according to plan, and there haven't been any substantial delays. Those on the front lines say otherwise. I have a lot of worries about how this has been handled. Brendan Williams leads the New Hampshire Healthcare Association, the statewide advocate group for long-term care facilities. While some have been able to get their first doses with relative ease, he says the process for lots of others has been plagued by poor communication, scheduling problems, and a lack of transparency. As of January 14th, about one quarter of available doses had been administered to residents and staff at these facilities. Days matter when it comes to getting these vaccinations into people's arms. And the fact that it took so long to vaccinate an entirely place-bound population uh, does not uh, seem like a great harbinger of things to come when uh, they need to vaccinate uh, the general public. 
The sense that days matter to their sister was all too acute to Karen Coleman and Jamie Cunningham. They kept asking staff at Lafayette Center whether it was possible to move up the date of the clinic, and the facility said they tried all they could. Meanwhile, more residents and staff were testing positive. The siblings felt they had no choice but to take matters into their own hands. They started making calls, writing letters to the media, including NHPR, to the governor's office, to anyone who would listen. I was feeling very anxious because one of the things that's most important to me is to continue to have really positive relationships with the people who were taking care of my sister. But it didn't seem like anything they were doing was really making a difference. A few weekends ago, Karen Coleman woke up worrying it was all getting away from her, that her sister wouldn't get vaccinated before she got COVID. Then she realized there was one person she hadn't yet contacted, Perry Plummer, the head of the state's vaccine rollout. She tracked down his cell phone number online and sent him a text message asking for help. To her surprise, the message got through. We are definitely inserting ourselves where we need to to make sure that the facilities are getting done in a timely manner. Plummer says when he heard what was going on, he agreed. Things were taking too long. His team worked with CVS to move up the date to January 15th. And this wasn't the first time Plummer's team has had to do something like this. We were everybody was vaccinated on day one. It's, it's just not possible. While Karen Coleman, like lots of other families, wishes her loved one could have been vaccinated on day one, she's glad it's at least happening now. But she and her brother, Jamie Cunningham, know there's a lot that can still happen. The shot on the 15th was just for one dose. Their sister won't get her second dose for three more weeks and her booster shot three weeks after that. Personally, myself, I, I'm still scared. She could, you know. It's not safe yet. <laughs> wow. I, I hope we can cross the finish line. At this point, they feel like they've done everything they could to keep their sister safe. They just have to hope that the other people in charge are doing the same. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Casey McDermott. As COVID-19 vaccine distribution continues across the country, we'd like to hear about your experience. Have you or a family member gotten the vaccine? Or have you tried and not been able to? Tell us about it at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. After the break, the enduring legacy of Mexican-American pop star Selena. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, 
supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. This is Selena, a Mexican-American pop star singing one of her hits, Dreaming of You, over 25 years ago. Selena Quintanilla became a household name because of her music and her death. She was murdered in 1995 at the age of 23. For some people, Selena, who was unapologetically herself, changed their life. That's how it was for Maria Garcia. Maria is the host of the new podcast, Anything for Selena, from WBUR and Futuro Studios. She grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas, and Selena showed Maria what it looked like to own your Mexican-American identity. Here's an excerpt from the first episode of the podcast. Her charisma spilled off the screen. Her voice emoted every feeling with precision. She'd go from these synthy Tex-Mex cumbias to traditional Mexican rancheras. And then, bam, she'd sing a song in English that sounded like something I would hear on my Top 40 station with R&B influences. She was this force on stage. And off stage, she was joyful and humble like a real person. I remember someone asking her once what she'd do if she wasn't a famous singer. And she was like, I don't know, work at a fast food joint? ¿Qué piensas tú que estuvieras haciendo ahorita? Um, no sé, I'm trabajando en Waterburger. <laughs> <laughs> to seven-year-old me in 1993, it felt nothing short of revolutionary to see a Mexican-American woman with working-class roots take pride in who she was and have the world love her for it. To all the fans who support Tejano music, que viva la raza, eh? When I discovered her, Selena was in her early 20s and already a total star. She'd been singing since she was nine, touring Texas cities. I remember seeing her on TV winning at the Tejano Music Awards. <laughs> this is so cool. Um, I'd like to thank every one of you who have supported Selena Zenas for many, many years. It's been such a long time since we've been in the music business. I would see her in commercials on Texas TV stations. Can't 
I remember people constantly talking about how she would be a mainstream crossover star once she finished recording an English album she was working on. But to me, she was already a total American pop star. What completely blew my mind was that she had crossed over into Mexico, the Mexico where kids made fun of me for not speaking Spanish perfectly, for not being the type of Mexican that people thought I should be, my home country that sometimes felt like it rejected me. But here was Selena, queen of all pochas, and Mexico loved her. Definitivamente México te ha abierto las puertas, Selena, porque no solamente Monterrey, sino también en toda la República Mexicana. When I would mess up my Spanish, I felt this pang of humiliation and panic. But Selena was messing up Spanish all the time, and she did it with an open heart. Hola, ¿qué tal, amigos? Yo soy Selena y quiero invitarlos a para que vean el show de Padrísimo cada domingo, no se lo pierdan. When she sang, Selena could pass for a native Spanish speaker. But she didn't really learn to speak Spanish until she was a teenager. Here was Selena, saying stuff wrong, translating out loud, struggling for words in Spanish, and sometimes English, just like me. It's just like a cute name, like, hi, Buffy, what are you doing, Buffy? You know, like a un cariño, like a, ¿cómo se dice cariño? Like a... Selena switched between Spanish and English, Mexican and American in the public eye. And there were no cruel jokes, no shame in her accent, just adoration. She'd declare herself a proud Mexican. To me, it was as if she told Mexico, I don't sound like you. But this heritage is mine to claim, too. It's never too late to get close to your roots, she'd say. Her identity as a Mexican-American wasn't some novel detail people would find out about her. No, it was central to her presentation as an artist and as a person. She was explicitly Mexican-American. And just the way she looked really made an impression on me. Growing up on Univision and Mexican programming, all I mostly saw on television were these Mexicans with fair skin and often with blonde hair and light-colored eyes. I remember watching Selena on Mexican shows and thinking, she looks more Mexican than the hosts. Shout out to you if you recognize this telenovela open from your childhood. Selena made cameos as herself on this hugely popular Mexican show, her halting Spanish contrasting the heavily enunciated sound of mostly white Mexicans around her. O sea que tú naciste en Estados Unidos? Sí, soy de Corpus Christi. Oye, ¿ya conociste a los de Bronco? No es la primera vez que, en, que lo voy a ver en vivo. Oye, pero pues te encanta Ramiro, ¿verdad? Siempre es tan directa. She was just magnetic, different. And by 1994, when I was nine, 
Selena was ascending to Latino royalty. The Grammy goes to live Selena. She won a Grammy Award for Best Mexican-American Album for a live record of her music. That night, she wore this sparkly white gown with her black hair in a tall updo, curly wisps framing her glowing face. I'd also like to thank uh, my band, Los Dinos, my father, Abraham, my brother, who's a producer of my music, and also my sister. Thank you for all the support. And I'd also like to thank all of you, my Latin family. Thank you for having faith in me. I love you. Thank you. She was an international star, filling major stages in Latin America. After a performance in New York City, the New York Times called her the undisputed queen of the fastest-growing Latino genre in the country. Well, it's like a dream come true. I mean, there's been a lot of hard work that we put into it, but, you know, when you get hard work, you get success. And, and we put a lot of years into it, 12 years. It felt surreal to see someone like me making it on her own terms. One of ours. Those of us in the middle who felt like we weren't enough. Enough to be fully Mexican or fully American. But Selena was enough. In both places. And that meant that maybe I could be enough. I don't remember if I went to school on March 31st, 1995. The day feels like a patchwork of images etched in my memory. It's hard to remember the order of things. I just see these vignettes, these split-second moments, and I remember this pit in my stomach. Again, recapping our top story, Tejano recording star and South Texan Selena Quintanilla was shot and killed in Corpus Christi today, the person who apparently shot I was at home, in the trailer, seeing my mom glued to the TV, tears rolling down her rosy cheeks. I'd never seen her cry for someone who wasn't our family. A star faded away today. Tejano music queen Selena has been gunned down in Corpus Christi. We'll take Family members in Mexico and the States called us, crying, in shock, asking if we were watching the news on TV. Corpus Christi police converged on this motel around 11.30 this morning and quickly surrounded a red pickup truck. Inside, the woman suspected of shooting to death, Tejano music star Selena Quintanilla Perez. Details poured in. Selena had been shot by the president of her fan club. Her name was Yolanda Saldivar. I remember seeing her face on the news and feeling my body fill up with a novel kind of rage. The suspect in the shooting has been holding police at bay for hours, sitting in a pickup truck in the parking lot and holding a gun to her head. When my dad came home from work that Friday, we watched the TV together. It got dark. I wept. My mom held me. The standoff ended after 10 hours of very intense negotiations. The suspect, Yolanda Salivar, came out of the truck. The police officers used the I just broke out in tears and I couldn't believe it and I still can't believe it. I'm still in shock. 
Suddenly, Latinos, especially working-class Mexican-American people, were everywhere on TV, crying for her on the street, talking about what she meant to them. Fans who did not know her felt as if they did, and their pain reflected the loss of a good friend. And, you know, it just hurts. She's a good person. That was an excerpt from the new podcast, Anything for Selena, produced by WBUR and Futuro Studios and hosted by Maria Garcia. Maria joins us now to talk more about the podcast. Maria, welcome to Next. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you join us. And we just heard about Selena's murder in that excerpt of the episode, episode one. You very much include your own story in this podcast. Can you talk a little bit about what Selena means to you? I knew that the only real way that I could tell the story, the only authentic way that I could tell the story is from my lens. You know, as an editor, as an arts and culture editor and reporter, I tell young journalists all the time, like, don't abandon the lens from which you're looking at the world. There is no such thing as coming to a story from a place of nowhere. You look at the world from the place that you occupy. And so for me, that place took me back to being seven years old and feeling torn between my American identity and my Mexican identity and feeling like these two parts of myself were not only divorced from each other, but were in tension with each other. And there was sort of this this gash inside of me. But then, you know, I discover Selena and here she was celebrating an identity that at that time was so derided. You know, here was this woman like embracing working class Mexican American aesthetic and she was ascending in American society without compromising her roots, without compromising who she was. And even at seven years old, without sort of the ability to truly grasp this or intellectualize it, even then, I felt that it mattered, that it was profound. And so now I've grown up, you know, now I'm 35 years old. It's, I've grown up in Selena's legacy. And so the podcast is is an ode to Selena, but also a cultural reckoning and just like a deeply intimate quest. In the podcast, you talk with Selena's father, Abraham Quintanilla, and you say that your boss would only give you the green light to make the show if you got an interview with Abraham. Why was that so important? Why did you need to get that interview? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't just the interview. We knew that if we wanted to capture Selena, if we wanted to tell a nuanced story, if we really wanted to bring rigorous journalism, incisive cultural commentary, and like a deeply personal story that we had to really like understand her as a human, as a woman, as like a living, breathing person who was on earth with us, you know, and not just as an icon, not just as an idea. And that meant going to her family, going to her father, notoriously guarded, known for guarding her legacy, her image with an iron fist. And so episode two is about me going to Texas and meeting her father after a lifetime of hearing really scary stories about him, of seeing portrayals of him as a sort of a machista, controlling, exacting father, and then going to meet him and being 
completely halted, completely sort of taken aback by what he made me confront in my own life and in my own relationship with my father. And really, I didn't go to Texas thinking that I was going to make an episode about Latino fatherhood. <laughs> and then it turned out to be that. Selena was killed by the president of her fan club in 1995. What did you learn about America from the way Selena's death was viewed and talked about by different groups? Yeah, well, you know, what was happening in the national consciousness in 1995, we were sort of in the middle of a huge demographic shift from 1990 to 2000, the Latino population skyrocketed by 60%. And in 1995, you saw all of this anti-Latino, anti-immigrant anxiety really bubbling up in public policy, in culture, even in media portrayals of Mexico. Mexicans and, and Latinos were mostly ones of lost dropouts or gang members or teen moms. And then so here comes Selena, right, who breaks all of these narratives. And so when she died, there was a culture war, a for culture war that frankly has been forgotten and that we hope in the podcast sheds light on where we were as a country then and where we are as a country now and seeing the reverberations of that culture were after her death and how similar the rhetoric was now and today has been really, really, really fascinating. And you've talked about, you know, your own personal connection to Selena's story. I'm wondering why it was so important to you, like, to make this podcast? What said inside you, like, I have to make this podcast? Oh, my goodness. I wanted to do her justice. Like, there is just so much Selena content out there. I mean, there is still a hunger for Selena. And so I wanted to combine my love for journalism for with like a personal, intimate ode to Selena. And I wanted to finally like tell the world how this woman, this working class woman from South Texas who started singing to put food on the table at nine years old, how she has become this icon of Latino identity, this shorthand for an entire American experience. And I wanted to actually like unpack that in detail. I wanted to connect the dots over decades. I wanted to like illustrate to the world that this woman, just by not apologizing for who she was, not compromising who she was, taking up space, changed culture. And I think that was like my grand motivator the whole time. Well, we're so grateful to you for sharing this ode to Selena. Maria Garcia is the host of Anything for Selena, a podcast from WBUR and Futuro Studios. Maria, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I, I had a great time. Anything for Selena is available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also have a link to the show at our website. That's nextnewengland.org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, how pandemic binge-watching is giving industry workers in Massachusetts a boost. Plus, sea shanties have become surprisingly popular on the app TikTok. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage. 
including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. A lot of people are keeping themselves entertained during the pandemic or distracted by binge-watching shows. TV and movie production is not just in Hollywood. A limited series of the show Dexter is preparing to film in Western Massachusetts, according to Showtime. And in Central Mass, the need for new content has been a boon to many industry workers. From Worcester, GBH Radio's Carrie Saldo has more. That's Dan Diaz's ringtone. If you aren't a Doctor Who fan, you're hearing the show's signature time machine taking off. And Diaz's phone has gone off at least six times in the past hour. Hey, Ashley. How are you, buddy? It's a welcome sound for the manager of Westerman Restaurant Supply and Props Warehouse in Worcester, where business is drastically different than it was in March when the pandemic hit. Everything shut down, like our restaurant end shut down. Uh, and the films all shut down. And Diaz says they laid off the majority of their 20 employees. But then, within six weeks, a plot twist. Thankfully, everybody's been sitting home watching Netflix and Hulu and AMC, so they're getting more content out. So because of that, we've actually been able to you know, hire everybody back and everybody going, and we've been busy. Now, with several different film, TV, and streaming crews shooting in Worcester, the props division, just a small side business a decade ago, is helping to keep Westerman in business. So we have close to like 125,000 square feet here. I think probably 50,000 of it is now just used for props. Like, this is one of our prop floors. Westerman is home to the random stuff that helps make a set look like, well just about anything. And Diaz has it all cataloged in his head. Old tech for a 90s newsroom. So like when we did uh, Spotlight. Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. This is all like, uh, you know, when we did Black Mass. Your brother is waiting in some very dark waters. Jimmy's business is Jimmy's business. We all need friends. Even Jimmy. Props from Westerman often help make one place look like somewhere else. I know uh, a lot of this stuff here is from Castle Rock. Castle Rock, a creepy series based on author Stephen King's work, is set in Maine, but was largely shot in and around central Massachusetts. Young man, who are you? What wasn't shot on location was filmed at New England Studios, a $40 million production facility located at a sprawling industrial park where Fort Devens used to be. Gary Crossan is its general manager. Crossan says seven years in, business has changed, and more so during the pandemic. And in our first couple of years, um, the winter was dead. Now, he says winter is just as busy as the summer months. Two new productions from Amazon and Showtime, which started filming in October, are set to be there for months, with some changes related to COVID. It's not just hand sanitizer and masks, but it's regular testing, much smaller crews, a lot of very good care taken uh, to do these productions. We're doing the best we can. That's John Stimson, who owns the Worcester-based company H9 Films. COVID has been really difficult, and it's and now, even though we're, we're back and working, it's added a layer of, of expense in that everything takes longer. But he says the extra work is worth it. 
A recent study showed Hulu's Castle Rock alone has created more than 1,000 jobs in the region. Stimson, who recently wrapped a film set on the Cape, produces holiday-themed films that often appear on Hallmark and Lifetime. He used the oval skating rink on the Worcester Common in a film that aired this holiday season. Maybe we could work together to figure out a way to save the oval. But how? Can some holiday magic save it? We have to show him how many people love the oval. So hopefully movies like mine, will, when people come here, they'll look around and they'll go, I remember that from that movie. Film and television can have a lasting impact. Martha's Vineyard still draws Jaws fans 45 years after that movie was filmed on the island. Who knows, maybe the town of Orange, used for several scenes in Castle Rock, will one day draw tourists as well. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Saldo. We end the show with something fun and unexpected that's happened so far in 2021. It seems the popular social media platform TikTok has been taken over by sea shanties. Connecticut Public Radio's Ray Hardman reports on the phenomena and the timeless allure of these old songs from the sea. Sometimes it's hard to trace something like this, but it seems the sea shanties' sudden foray into pop culture started with this. She had not been two weeks from shore when down on her a right whale bore. The captain called all hands and swore he'd take that whale in tow. Soon may the whale man come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tonguing is done, we'll take our leave and go. That's young Scottish singer Nathan Evans performing an old sea shanty called The Wellerman on TikTok. That performance inspired TikTok users to add their voices and instruments to Evans' original video. Pretty soon, sea shanty started trending on TikTok and Twitter. Clearly, many users of both sites were discovering the catchy songs for the first time. So what are sea shanties, and why are they enjoying their moment in the spotlight? To find out, I turn to two experts on the subject. Nathan Rumney is the supervisor of interpretation, theater, and music at Mystic Seaport. And Eric Ingmanson is Mystic Seaport's director of interpretation. Rumney tells me, simply put, shanties were work songs, a way to get sailors in sync with their labors. Many of the jobs that you have on board, like hoisting an anchor, walking around a capstan, or hoisting up sails, have a song or a type of song associated with them to help coordinate the effort. Because if you get everyone pulling at the same time, it's essentially a force magnifier, as uh, the shantyman would say. Beyond being a force magnifier, Eric Igmanson says the songs had other benefits as well. As much as anything, shanties were a way to kind of keep your mind occupied and just kind of help your mood when you were doing a job that could take hours that you've probably done many, many times before and is physically hard and mind-numbingly dull. Rumney tells me that the shantymen, the sailors in charge of leading the shanties, were well aware of this and wove intricate stories into their songs. They would get to certain points in the story and either make it up, or maybe they've heard it before, they're just improving, 
And the sailors want to hear more. And sometimes you want to get them to that point where it's like they want the work to go on a little bit more so they can hear the rest of that song. Sea shanties exist today through oral tradition, so little is known about who actually wrote the songs. But the subject matter of the shanties seems to fall under some broad categories, according to Igmanson and Rumney. One common theme is that your, your mind is wandering and it goes into the gutter, you know? <laughs> For for lack of a better way to put it, sometimes they feel like a form of venting because they're like talking about a captain or a mate that they really can't stand. Um, Drinking and having a good time at the uh, the local establishments and, you know, the dangers involved therein. So like basically what you'd rather be doing instead of work. (laughs) Anything the mindset of like an 18 to a 24 year old boy is going to be thinking about you're going to have a shanty about it somewhere. So we've established what sea shanties are. Now on to the tougher question. Why are they going viral right now on social media? Nathan Rumney. I would say that probably having a song that everyone or at least a large number of people can know, it's really easy to learn that everyone can join in on and kind of feel like they're part of the group. That would be the appeal in my opinion. But Eric Igmanson says it could be that popular culture has already been introduced to sea shanties, whether they know it or not. Shanties have been featured in some really popular computer games, like Assassin's Creed Black Flag. That game in particular, I think, features a lot of, of sea music and shanties. That's, I think, piqued some people's interest. You know, I think any kind of music that has sort of a rebellious edge to it is, is fun and appealing to people. And sea music certainly, and shanties certainly meet that criteria. (laughs) 19th century's version of punk rock, if you will. Now, for those of you who are declaring 2021 the year of the sea shanty, and yes, that is a thing on Twitter right now, there is good news. Mystic Seaport will hold a shanty blast, a virtual shanty sing-along, on Saturday, February 6th from 1 to 3 p.m. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ray Hartman. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.